ultimately I found I found myself sleeping um, in a in a basement bathroom of the St. Boniface Hospital, which is a hospital where I'd been born, you know, 36 years earlier, and where my dad had died in 2009, and, and here I was, like, I found a, a place where nobody would bother me, and I could lock the door and, and sleep for like 12 hours, and, you know, emerge, and, and, like, I didn't want anybody to know that this was going on, in fact, I, when someone else used the word homeless to describe my situation, I said, don't say the H word. Because I was so ashamed. We've known each other for so long. Your heart's been aching, but you're too shy to say it. Inside we both know what's been going on We know the game and we're gonna play I just wanna tell you how I'm feeling I've gotta make you understand Never gonna give you up Never gonna let you down Never gonna run around Here it goes. It's been so long since I've recorded one of these, the intro, and I missed doing it. But I guess it's kind of like riding a bike. Hope that I still can do it. Got the chops to be able to to do these off-the-cuff intros and podcast interviews. But I had the pleasure of catching up with uh, Robert Lidstone, a guy that I've known for a good portion of my life not didn't didn't know each other well but went to to high school together we ended up reconnecting in a pretty interesting way uh, which led us to do this podcast interview but robert had uh had an interesting path an interesting turn in life since i knew him in high school and the person that i knew him as and i think that his change in trajectory was something that was a surprise to not only himself but a lot of people that were very close to him and so Robert ended up uh you know I chatted for quite a while and he was he was very candid and um and forthcoming with his story he he talked about a lot of a lot of sensitive things and um I think it's important that that these type of stories get out into the world so that people can learn and understand from them um all the different all the different things that we talked about but uh I appreciated him being so open with this story and I hope that that others can um can appreciate it and respect it as as much as I did, so really enjoyed talking with Robert, and uh, very interesting guy, very sharp, very sharp guy, and uh, had a lot of fun with him. I'm Ben Grenell, and this is Character, episode 32, Anything But The H Word.
Yeah, so I, I grew up uh, in a house that my dad built on the Brokenhead River, uh, just uh, east of Beausager. And um, it's funny, I never really tell people I'm from Beausager, <laughs> uh, but I spent the first 14 years of my life there. Um, that's where I went to school. Uh, and then in grade nine, I started at St. John's Ravens Court in the city. And um, we kind of, um, we put our house in the country up for sale and bought a house on South Drive in Fort Gary. Um, but there was this awkward period where we, my parents owned two houses and, you know, it was a bit of a stretch for this sort of middle class family. And, you know, they're paying for me to go to private school. So um, I, my sister and my mom actually moved into the city. So they were, I was in boarding at, at SJR. Um, and, but they were, my family was living down the street. <laughs> so it's kind, of, kind of strange. Um, and then I think about halfway through the year, I, uh, I became a day student. I remember the house that you you guys bought because that was one of my parents' close family friends owned that house and oh. our our friends. Oh, so okay. they owned that house growing up. I don't know if they owned it before you bought it. I think no, they must have yeah. I think they there was another owner before that, but then okay. you moved in there. So I know exactly. Like it was just such a funny thing where I was like, Oh And you guys lived on campus, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's how we probably got to know each other a little yeah. bit better in the sense where like my family was there twenty four seven. Yeah, I have a really fond memory of your your dad. Um because honestly I, I didn't I really didn't like being in boarding. Um I kinda hated it. Uh but there were certain people who made me feel more comfortable and, and he was definitely one of them. I just, I didn't relate that well to um, peers until I was like um, kind of later in high school, like at Vincent Massey. Um, so I just, I don't know. It was just a tough time for me, like through most of childhood and adolescence. I just didn't really, I don't know. I just didn't really, it was like everybody was, was on a different wavelength to me anyways, but maybe everybody goes through a bit of that. I don't know. Well, I, I can imagine like, so for you you're going from a smaller community that you've that's all you've known your yeah. whole life right yeah. smaller quaint community and then coming into boarding no matter <laughs> like no matter what city you come from it's it's yeah. a bit of a shock to the system right because when you when you turn whatever let's just say 12 13 14 that period of 12 through 16 there's so many emotional changes i think for yeah for, it's a lot of growing pains for any yeah and it's like who your friends are and what you do and how you identify like am i this am i that am i like, yeah you don't even know you're not sure what you're supposed to be are you an actor right. in your own life story or are you just yourself right like it's so it's such an un yeah. um, a period of uncertainty for so many people and so i can only imagine you go from like the dynamic of going from Beaujolais to boarding where it's kind of this weird thing in itself where it's almost, it's interesting because yeah. it, yeah. it can be supportive, but it can also be cliquey, right? In a weird way. And then, and you're like, but my parents are living down the street and I'm kind of here. And like, <laughs> well, I would, some days I would take the, the SJR bus home and, <laughs> and my mom would say, you know, we're paying all this money in tuition, like, you know, get back there. Yeah. Um, and I, the other factor I think was, um, you know, everybody's hitting puberty at that age. And so, I mean, I, 
had some sense that I was gay. And, but at that time, I don't know, it was still a pretty um, dicey proposition to come out. Like, in the, well, yeah, no, it, 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 it's not something I even considered uh, in, at that time. Like, in, this, was, this was 95, 96. So, you know, things are a lot different now. Like, kids do come out at that age. But even then, it can be difficult now. At, at that point, it would have been like, I don't know, like social suicide. <laughs> Oh, of course. And, and I think like, so 95, I mean, let's just say 20, what's that? 23 years ago for adults to come out 23 years ago was this, let's say an adult in a workplace, like something that's just such a non issue, right? In today's day and age, but it's just like, that was one of those things where even then it was like this for as goofy as it is, it just, it was this taboo uh-huh. thing. So for a high school student, never mind a high school student who's yeah. 14, 15, like 13 to 16 years old or whatever the age, it doesn't matter. It's It was 23 years. A lot has changed and it's still for people, yeah. I can imagine, it's still challenging in its own respect. But society is just more, I think because of things as weird as it is, things like social media or um the way the media um the way the media can spread awareness allows people to be more open minded towards um just towards anything right i mean there in the you know the 20 years between then and now i mean there have been all kinds of you know media representations of gay people you know everything from like will and grace to glee but you know at that time i think it was I think it was the Ellen show and she, her version of coming out was to say she was Lebanese. <laughs> that was like, that was really like groundbreaking <laughs> and everybody, everybody knew what she meant, but. And that was when it was her show, right? Like you're yeah. saying the Ellen oh, show. Oh, sorry. Yeah. The, right. Not the talk show, but the, uh, the sitcom. <laughs> yeah. And that was such a fucked up thing. Cause I remember I used to watch that show with my parents and I love that show. And when it was a good show, when every, it was killer, but when the media, like the media, when um, the industry, let's call it, turned a cold shoulder to Ellen for that, yeah, it was so absurd. I think, like, what I recall about it is that the it it um, the critics kind of started to pan it after it became, you know, a show about you know um, being a lesbian, and and that was a, just a little too probably a little too edgy and maybe it wasn't as funny. I don't really remember, but, but regardless it was, yeah, it didn't last long after that. And then I think she had a tough go after that. Probably like in, in the industry, just from some of the, the interviews that I've seen her do, she had a really tough go for a while where people were just not, it was, it's silly because it's like, uh, yeah, nothing changed. Still the same yeah. funny person. Like And her her humor is like the least sort of, you know, offensive. It's like she's the nicest comedian out there and she still manages to be like hilarious. But uh you know, she's not mean, uh, right? No. Like um and yet she still still struggled. Yeah, and it's uh yeah, but that's that's that twenty year shift, right? The twenty twenty to twenty five year shift of how like now now it's just like not a thing like if no. there there's no news story if somebody is like you know what i mean somebody comes out and it's like an actor uh somebody let's say somebody in the face of the media 
it's not like, oh, that's a news story. People like, yeah. who cares? Like, yeah. Um, but I, I can imagine that when when you're you're going through all the uh, changes, your your life changes, and coming to the school, right? Like that's a huge change, mm-hmm. and it's so natural, I think, for anybody at at any age to get homesick, right? Yeah. But then there are all these other things that are going through your mind where you're like, can I be myself or am I going to get, um, am I going to get shunned for yeah. it or, or ignored or pushed and in I, the corner, I think right? It was actually around that time that I really began to develop like a double, a double life or a double sense of self because, you know, I felt I had these feelings and, you know, or experienced attraction or, but it couldn't be expressed openly so i i a few years later i think when we um you know we got the we got like dial up internet and, and um i started um chatting online to meet other gay people um but i didn't tell anybody about it i don't think i actually came out until after the first year of of university so by that point i'd already kind of formed this weird like repressed relationship with myself and um, that definitely, like, it, it, it established a pattern that was, that was quite resilient, actually. Like, I think that I thought that when I came out, that was sort of resolved it, but, but it, it didn't. So, so at school, like when you're in high school, whether it's SGR or Massey, there's no one that you ever felt connected, close enough or connected enough to that you could kind of confide in them and just be... Yours. Well, you know, in retrospect, I had like I, a lot of my close friends, especially at Massey, were girls, and I'm actually still close with some of them today. And um, in retrospect, I could have come out to them, but I was so far, so deep in the closet that um, that was just too threatening. But I, but I began to experiment. It's actually like I began meeting people off the internet. And I just didn't tell anybody. And so there was this very, but I felt very ashamed of it. And, you know, there was this whole secrecy around that. And so um, I can't say why exactly I it, it went that way. I mean, obviously the sort of homophobia around me was a big factor, but I think it was also my own, my own relationship with myself was like a bit harsh in a way. Like I, I didn't, um, if I, if I sort of, um, perceived others to have certain expectations of me I definitely wanted to live up to them and and so I was going to bury whatever my own true desires were but you know if you but they're still there and so then they sort of come out sideways <laughs> I just had this incredible compartmentalization where it was like there was this whole sphere of my existence that was separate and for all intents and purposes, didn't exist in the rest in regards to the rest of my life, which I know is like really problematic, but that's sort of how it worked, like psychologically. Yeah, I can I can imagine that being challenging because I think around anyone, any person just always wants to be like, oh, that's just yeah, the person. Yeah, that's their that's their true self, right? And right, that's when you feel your best too. Is when you're just like, no, I'm just like I'm me, and I don't apologize for anything because mm-hmm. why should i yeah yeah and some of some of it too like i think that we inherit um sort of a a family culture and 
And mine was, I mean, there were wonderful people in my family, but very repressed in a lot of ways. Like, like you, the, the unwritten, unspoken rules were, you know, don't, don't express directly how you feel if it's not polite. <laughs> um, so then um, you end up, you know, bottling up a lot of impolite, quote unquote, emotions <laughs> And then, like, you know, maybe they explode or maybe they come out in sort of behavior that nobody else sees or they, you know, they turn into depression eventually or it's, it's, yeah, it's, and it's, it's something that um, I, I saw, you know, in my mother and, and a bit in my sister and my dad. Um, again, like wonderful people, uh, but they had these like sort of, you know, ways of, ways of being that weren't they they just kind of inherited you know you kind of copy from 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 your family of origin um without even giving it a conscious thought um so yeah when we when i think back to that time i i I see it a lot differently i think i thought we were a normal family (laughs) i think i guess maybe maybe everybody thinks they're normal well well, that's that's the thing right is it it is normal it's average it's just that you like you not you a a person inherits these innate mannerisms and these ways of thinking and these ways of being because of just general nurture right like you're whether it's a family or whether it's your friends like you become a byproduct of your environment that's just the reality right so if you hang around a bunch of super positive people yeah it's hard to be negative if you hang around a bunch of people who are super negative all the time like friends, I'm just referring to a friend group, Mm -hmm. then even if you're the nicest person ever, it's like you start to become like that because it's, that's just the human nature. That's what ends up happening. Right. So if, if you get into a situation where you feel like, okay, well, I have to repress some of my thoughts or feelings or um, some of the things that you want to express, then it's, that's where it gets tough. Right. Yeah. Like I remember the way that I always, remember you in school as I was I always just thought oh like Rob's a nice guy he's just sweet he's kind he's uh-huh. uh, very I, I always thought you were like the smartest guy in our <laughs> class like right I'm like he just he keeps himself he gets, he gets his shit done yeah. he knows what he's doing in school right and I, I think probably a lot of it was Man, you know I I think that was I think I have the best work habits of my entire life that year, like academically, because I didn't have really anything going on socially. <laughs> so, so I just remember like spending hours in the study hall because I think that was just my comfort zone. And I, I almost like, I wish I could still <laughs> be that. Um, just diligent. crushing work nonstop. <laughs> that was what, that was, that was the, yeah. that was the peak. <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 of course, like, accomplished lots actually after that but i but in terms of like just sheer uh discipline yeah i have to say str was was really good for that it's, it's also that it's so academic in the sense where it's like the expectations are pretty high yeah. and like there wasn't a lot of wiggle room for being like let's say that you're at a school where there's a lot of wiggle room to skip classes and not do homework and whatever it is then 
I think it's probably yeah. easier to slip into those ways, but there it was like, okay, well, you got to get your stuff done and you have to be good. So I, I remember like before I went there, I think, <laughs> I think I'd read a lot of, um, you know, kind of young adult fiction about sort of British boarding schools. <laughs> and I had this like romantic idea of what it would be like. <laughs> and then the reality turned to be like, again, you know, it's a, it's a very fine school. I think it's just that I didn't, I think, you know, socially, I just really struggled. But, but yeah, I, I had constructed this uh, this fantasy based on, you know, reading reading novels by Enid Blyton. Or whatever, whatever <laughs> That's the so is. funny. I guess Harry Potter would That's sort of so... fall into that category, but that was way after this period. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. And then what what was the catalyst for m- moving in grade 10 to um, Massey? Well, I think a couple of things. One was that I was um, unhappy. Uh, like I just, I was miserable. Um, and uh, just, just felt I needed a change. And I, I think also like the financial piece was part of it. You know, it was kind of a stretch for my parents to, to afford um, private school. And uh, I remember going to Vincent Massey and, and checking up what they, what they had at some sort of orientation night. And <laughs> actually though, I, um, my, my, if I, I still have friends from my grade 10 English class at Vincent Massey and, and they were like, um, you know, you you read a whole different set of books than we did because you claimed that you'd already read those books at SGR. <laughs> so apparently so I like, my first impression was just like to be a total snob and like, you know, oh, I've already read Romeo and Juliet. So I'm just going to do like King Lear over here by myself. So again, I have like a lot, of, a lot to learn in terms of like the social uh, piece, but but I kind of, you know, I, I did more there. I uh, I found it was more of a, like a live and let live kind of place. There were just so many people. There were like 300 in every grade that you know, ultimately nobody really gave too much of a crap um, whether, you know, this nerd over here or that jock over there was, you know, what they were doing. It was, there was a bit of that, but it was actually pretty, pretty chilled out. Um, and I, I found a niche um you know like of, of friends in the the model un and the environment all the really dorky stuff and I, so i was ha- i was happy for the most part that's so funny and then you you were there till 12 and then you went to u of m after i actually went to um western in london ontario um there were several people that went from massey here and we all kind of banded together there are lots of uh, SGR people that went there too. Yeah, there. Are, I'm. I, yeah, that's right. I'd forgotten that. So, did you like when you saw them? Did you like? Did you look at them and go, "Hey, I know you. Like, I remember you. It's been a couple of years, but I remember those." Yeah, two. I mean, I, I think I think by that point, you know, everybody'd kind of matured a bit, and I don't, I don't, I remember it being pretty whatever encounters I had with people were, you know, were friendly. And you're also away from home too. So you're like, Hey, we're both from Winnipeg. Well, I just, I remember any one, anyone that I knew that went there, like they might've been, um, they might've had a good time in high school and partied a bit and stuff. But I remember that was like Western. They just always said to 
it was such an insane party school. Like that's all that they ended up doing there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it definitely there's a lot of binge drinking. Um, I suppose <laughs> when I when I think about it now, I but it, but um, I was on a, a on a dorm where everybody was. I don't know how they they. I guess they must have grouped us together as some kind of like academic achiever category because <laughs> everybody in my dorm got like pretty good grades. I mean, people did party heavily, but they also buckled down when they needed to. Um, and it was just, it was a lot of fun. Like it was the, the year was just like one big slumber party. We actually used to drag our mattresses down the hall into each other's rooms and have like sleepovers. And, and it was, yeah, it was, it was like a family. Um, and, uh, my first year psychology course had 1,200 people in it. And the guy ran it like a Las Vegas stage show. If he had a headset and he'd run up and down the aisles and had these, you know, videos and PowerPoints. And, and, um, and we thought it was a little over the top. So there were four of us in our dorm that were all in the same class and we had a rotation. So you only had to go to lecture once every two weeks. <laughs> Took really good notes. We trusted each other and we all got A's on the exam. Just trading it out, trading places. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Just transactional. <laughs> so, did, were you were you still pretty academic in like in high school at Mass? You were still pretty academic. Yeah, I um I gravitated towards um oh they had a social science elective, so I took pretty much every one, every single one available, and that and then I ended up majoring in in political science, and um that's always that that's always been like a a major interest. It's actually kind of compulsive. I realize like the whole news junkie thing. Like I just, I do it compulsively without even really, you know, I'm not even sure that it's, it, uh, it's conducive to good mental health all the time. Cause a lot of the news is just like depressing, but, uh, always consuming. but I, I, I follow it like a soap opera. And that's what you, so you at Western, that's what you majored in was poli sci. I did. Yeah. And you were you still pretty academic at at Western? I was pretty acad- I was pretty academic, um, and I, I but I had a good time. I mean, I I, I hung out with um, a lot of my friends were in visual arts, and they seemed to have the best. Like, the, you know, they'd always be going to art openings, or their parties were just more interesting. So I kind of fell in with that crowd socially, and then the the um, my poli sci classes, I. I don't recall being as close to people. They were all like young liberals and young conservatives. And then I was, I was quite left wing. So I'd be, I'd, I'd always write my paper about like, I don't know, the NDP or something like that. <laughs> I'd be like the lone, the lone outlier. <laughs> Just the furthest left you could be. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And then you, did you, take some time off like did you start working after um after undergrad no no i i went straight into a master's at uh simon fraser and um i don't know if i would have known how to function in the real real world actually (laughs) um i uh yeah i did a master's in um a geography department and uh did a did research on uh, les- lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, refugee claims. 
which at the time had very little published about it. So it was a great topic because, you know, most things in academia are just like studied to death. And this was, um, this was a really stimulating subject. And I, I got involved kind of doing a bit of activism with um, this group called the Rainbow Refugee Committee in Vancouver. So we would actually have people arriving from all over the world, like Pakistan or um, Nigeria. They'd, they'd arrive in Vancouver and they would need help with everything from housing to, um, you know, medical appointments and then getting prepared for the refugee claim. So I learned a lot and, uh, and I got a, a lot of good um, sort of data for my thesis and um, it was well received. Um, and that, so that took me up to about 2006. That, that must've been interesting though. Cause like that, that's gotta be hard where in, in Canada we're like generally, let's just say, I hate to always generalize and say like, Oh, everybody's so open-minded. Like everywhere you go, you're always going to find people that have different viewpoints on X, Y, and Z, but in Canada compared to other countries like um let's just say like countries in the middle east right if somebody if somebody identifies within the lgbtq uh-huh. um like any identifies within that group they have to um they have to uh-huh. internalize all their thoughts and feelings and everything because they're it's so frowned upon Right, and then you come to Canada, and people are just like, "I don't give, a, I don't give a fuck." Like, yeah. what, what's what's the big deal, right? So they come here, but they don't know. Yeah. They've heard that Canada is open-minded as a country, but they don't actually know. So to have some support yeah. system and infrastructure that's like, "Hey, here you go," like this is okay. Let's like yeah. take all the other stuff out of it. Just focus on the the like. Let's get you landed in the country then you take everything else off the table, right? Like you can almost put their mind at ease that that's a non-issue. Yeah. Them immigrating is the, I don't want to say the issue, but the the focus, that's the thing to focus on. Yeah. 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 Like it, it's sort of exactly what you're saying. The, the contrast between the country of origin and Canada in terms of the culture around sexuality um, was something that, you know, it took a while for people to acclimatize to that. And, and one of the biggest issues with the claims was that um, the Immigration and Refugee Board always wants to establish credibility. And they want to know that people are who they say they are. And they want to see some evidence of that. And so how do you supply evidence that you are gay or that you are trans? Um, you know, it can, it can actually be fairly challenging. Um, and uh, so some people ran into difficulties in their in their claims around that because they weren't quote unquote out enough after they came to Canada. You know, the board member would say, "Well, why, why, why aren't you going to the pride parade? And you know, why, why don't you have a, a a partner? Like all these just insane questions um, that uh, all pertain to this this issue of identity and, and credibility." So. Um, yeah, they were really complex. And then the other issue was, was whether or not the country that they came from was, was safe. And we actually had a lot of people coming from Mexico, um, mainly because in those years you could, 
you could get on a plane from Mexico City or other locations um, without a visa. And you could just come to Canada and make a refugee claim. And so we had a lot of Mexicans and and there was some some um, adjudicators doubted whether that's actually an, an unsafe place for for LGBT people, um, because there are, you know, if you go to Puerto Vallarta, there are gay bars and there's, you know, sort of a, a whole tourism industry. But um, so that was that was another component of the of the claims. Um, and uh, yeah, it was all it was all just really fascinating, but also troubling sometimes to like see what people had to go through. Yeah, like it, it breaks your heart in the sense where you're like, oh yeah. man, like it, I don't want to say ever that like it, it makes you appreciate how politically stable and economically stable and um. It, like how stable in general Canada is as yeah. a country. And we, there are always going to be problems. There's always, I'm not saying that everything is um, puppies and rainbows, right? Like there's a lot yeah. of shitty stuff. Like there just is like, there's, it does. I think in the world there's um, existential prejudice and racism and bigotry. And there's all these shitty things that will go on in perpetuity until until everybody has just until until it becomes Bill and Ted's excellent adventure when they meet Rufus in the end <laughs> until Wild Stallion reunites that's when it ends but um, <laughs> I think that's when that's it a, ends. That's an interesting end of day scenario. I like that. Yeah, but but in general, our country, as compared to like so many in the world, you go, geez, like yeah, we've got it pretty good here i mean even look at the political stability of canada versus the u.s yeah i know like it's as much as i will disagree with with some of our politicians at times like there is at least a higher level of um respect in terms of how people talk about one another and how people treat one another hopefully it doesn't you know deteriorate the the way that has in the in the u.s but um we do kind of take that for granted. It's easy to, right? It's easy. And it's also yeah. easy to go, oh, there's shittiness. Like when you see, and it's unfortunate, and it breaks my heart when I see any kind of bigotry or prejudice or anything. Yeah. anything it's just, it breaks my heart because you go, oh, gee, like it's 2018. Come on. Like what the fuck, guys? Like let's, let's get, move on. Yeah. Are there not better things to worry about? Like, yeah. The one, the one exception to that, I would say, is that um, so many Indigenous people in Canada still experience conditions that, you know, one might more associate with parts of the developing world, you know, like a, like a lack of clean running water or, you know, I mean, really basic things. And, and I was surprised, like, I actually, I, have, I ran into um, another SJR alumnus. Um, couple months ago and um i happened to be reading a headline about it was something to do with like the rate of incarceration among indigenous youth being on the rise and he was like what do you think about that and i i I don't know i kind of gave a brief you know commentary about it and and he basically said well you know they're it's not ever going to get any better until you know they're basically just going to all die off and i was just so shocked that someone with that 
education and coming from that privilege would have such a backward view about it. I know that's the stuff that breaks my heart is that it's one thing even for thoughts to cross somebody's mind. It's another for somebody to vocalize yeah. them. And I, I tried not, like, I, I kind of wanted to, like, fly off the handle and be like, you're an asshole. But, I, you know, I, I really, I, I don't believe that I'm doing um, Indigenous people any favors by just getting angry. Like, I think that I, I have to try to work to, like, engage somebody like that and, like, point point out what they're, what is wrong in what they're saying in a way that hopefully they hear and and make people sometimes understand why it's wrong like sometimes not not often but sometimes it's out of naivety right like people don't realize that what they're saying is so off colored yeah they're like that that's inappropriate right and so then if you can help people understand why that viewpoint is um i never want to say incorrect but why that viewpoint is not a positive one to hold Right then, maybe you can change someone's mindset, but it's it's unfortunate when that when that type of stuff occurs because it's just yeah yeah. I mean, it's I, I, I dude. I was watching. I watched the Mister Rogers that won't you be my neighbor doc. Oh yeah, the other day, last night or yeah, Saturday, whatever, two nights ago, and there I there were these protesters at his funeral. Really. And there were protesters that were protesting, um, like they were um, anti, or they were like homophobic protesters, right? Mm -hmm. And they're protesting him because he was so inclusive. Weird, right? And you're just like, you're like, what the fuck, people? <laughs> what was Mister Rogers inclusive of like children? <laughs> no, no, he because he was inclusive in the sense where he he wanted to expose people to people with all different backgrounds, okay. right? Whether it's whether it's gender, uh -huh. race, um, uh, different limitations, like health limitations, right? If somebody had a quote-unquote disability of some kind or some health limitation or some, um, some, something that differentiated them, yeah. right? Like somebody, let's say somebody yeah. with Down syndrome, right? Where they're just different. Mr. Rogers wanted people and children specifically to be exposed to all these people so there are all these protesters mm -hmm. at his funeral that were protest there were homophobic protesters protesting yeah. mr rogers and you're like okay come like that's the type yeah. of shit that like you have enough time in your day to do that but so it's it's unfortunate when people still hold these these strong viewpoints towards um mm. certain certain groups within the world, right? Whatever that group might be, anti-abortion or LGBTQ yeah. groups or yeah. race, racial, um, racially driven groups. It's, it's unfortunate. Uh -huh. So you, so after, after Simon Fraser, you graduated there and then you went straight to York. Uh, no, I actually took, um, I, I took an internship in Washington, DC um, at a think tank. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of funny. It was called the Project on Internal... Sorry, the Project on Internal Displacement, <laughs> which I always thought sounded like a, like a bowel condition or something. But it actually refers to um, refugees who are just displaced in, within the borders of their own countries. So they're internally displaced persons. And it's a UN designation. Um, actually, like Darfur 
uh, as a as a, a prominent example of of IBPs. So a lot of the a lot of the people that fled persecution in the Darfur region of Somalia were, you know, still inside the or sorry, the Darfur region of Sudan were still inside the borders of, of Sudan. So they were IDPs and they'd be living in, you know, um, other towns and cities, or they might be living in a, in a refugee camp. Um, so yeah, I was uh, a little, little Canadian intern at this think tank. And uh, it was an, it was an interesting time. It was the, the tail end of the Bush years. Um, I actually remember watching uh, the, um, we're heading into midterms this this year in 2018. That year, it was um, the Congress changed hands between the, the the Democrats took control of the House and the Senate, and it was kind of after President Bush's approval rating had taken a a tumble with the fallout from um, Hurricane Katrina and the the Iraq War, and um, the chickens were sort of coming home to roost that year. So. Um, yeah, I remember watching that election with a bunch of people uh, in in DC, and um, and then also watching uh, the Sunday morning talk shows. Um, Barack Obama appearing on um, one of the shows, probably Meet the Press, or uh, and they asked him a direct question about whether he was going to run for president, and he he gave one of those one of those very typically politician evasive answers. <laughs> And and my friend who I was watching with, who was a who was a political consultant, was like, "Oh my God, he's gonna run!" And and then he was like, "But his name's Barack Hussein Obama. He could never win." <laughs> and that's and that was such a monumental moment in history, right? Like, yeah, yeah. And now we've got such a great leader. Yeah. No, <laughs> to yeah. be debated. It's, it's, <laughs> He's the first Oompa Loompa yeah, president. Apparently, ever. apparently. <laughs> Breaking new ground. Uh, yes, yes. Interesting, <laughs> interesting times we live in. Oh, interesting God. times we live in. Yeah. So you were down there, and then how, how long were you in D.C. for? Um, I was only there six months. I, uh, I was, they were actually hired me after the internship finished, and I, um, I went to Toronto to uh, apply for a new visa. And um, I was kind of I was kind of starting to hit bottom uh, addiction wise. I, I went out um, all weekend. I was using my passport as ID. I lost my passport at the bar, and um, so I couldn't get back into the U.S. And uh, so I had to I had to stay in Toronto to you know wait to get a new passport. And um, meanwhile, I continued to um, to use drugs and 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 just be quite out of control and my friends kind of the friends that I was staying with um sort of confronted me and said you know what what's going on and uh I ended up coming back to Winnipeg um to stay with my parents because I was because I was a drug addict um so that ended the whole Washington excursion Um, is, is, how, how did that what, what was the lead into that though like the lead when, to the addiction yeah well well yeah I guess in, in general like when when you were at Western like when when was your first exposure to any type of like drugs or alcohol or anything well I really was not somebody who had a, an obvious obvious substance 
substance abuse problem um, until I was, I think, about 25. Because um, prior to that, I drank socially. And um, I would actually say that the addiction was more... Um, more of a sex addiction to be honest like i i would um spend a lot of time like chatting and um you know meeting guys and 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 that just it just kind of took on a life of its own and i i did things that i um i don't know like it it went beyond you know what i what the normal me would do and it and it and it continued to be something that was kind of secretive and and there, I felt a lot of shame around it. And, and this was like well after I'd come out, like just sort of anonymous um, uh, connections with, with various, various partners. And, um, you know, I didn't feel good about it. Uh, and then when I, um, towards the end of my master's degree, actually, I, I kind of, I got pretty depressed. And I mean, it, it, it wouldn't be until many years later that I was, diagnosed with bipolar disorder which as it turns out is very strong in my genetics i mean i have two immediate family members with who've had various very serious bouts of of um of mania but uh, you know at the time i just thought i was kind of down or whatever and i i remember um i hooked up with a guy who uh had meth and um there was a line of it on the table and i I honestly, I'd tried cocaine once or twice before, and I just I'd kind of reached a point where I'd I was fairly depressed and taking risks, and kind of didn't think a whole lot about the consequences. And so I did did a line of this drug with the guy, and I mean, meth is a whole other level of um, just the chemistry of it, of the way that it affects your your brain than say something like cocaine, which is also very powerful. So that sort of started um, started a, a habit that I, I couldn't couldn't break, and um, I actually left Vancouver to sort of get away from it. And I took that that internship in Washington, thinking, "Oh, fresh start, you know, like this is it's a blank slate, new city, great opportunity." And I was using down there like pretty pretty soon after I arrived there, and I would kind of binge, like I would disappear for a day or two, like usually over the weekend, I'd still show up at my desk job and, and, um, you know, it might be once a month and then it became every weekend and, you know, it escalated. And, and, and then like, I think my last week in, in DC, I was like, I was the high the whole week and I was like going to work high. So. And where would you disappear to? Like, were you living with a roommate there? Yeah, I was sharing a sharing actually a one bedroom apartment with a guy because it was so expensive, but it was sort of you know it was really central. But I actually I would mainly disappear. I would say to um, other guys who were also using um, you know to their apartments or sometimes to a bathhouse. Um, there was kind of a subculture of of uh, of Matthews. Um, in segments of the gay community and, and you really find it in cities all over North America and um, yeah so it was like really just there any any time I never in the beginning I never paid for it it was just sort of supplied and um, I I 
really hard to maintain a certain level of denial around it, which meant that I didn't tell a soul, soul what was happening. Like nobody, um, none of my friends knew until they, until that, um, episode in Toronto where I was kind of spiraling downwards and they, I think I disappeared for like several days and they came back and they just said, you know, we're really concerned. And so when you were in DC, was it as easy to find as just like chatting with somebody or like just chatting in over the net? Yeah. Yeah. You just go, just go on a chat line and and I would find, I think I I found it the first day actually was pretty sad when I think about it. I also met a lot of really great people that was there. Like it wasn't, it wasn't wall to wall using but it was it was so clearly like the way that i coped with you know overwhelming feelings and uh i was overwhelmed when i got there i was fresh up like i didn't know anybody and you know the the drug kind of gave me relief escape you know kind of kind of self-medicating on some level and so then you thought when you went to toronto it was to renew your passport um or renew or sorry to renew your i guess your green card yeah, yeah, you have to get a different visa. If you're, you know, you get one type of visa if you're an intern and another type if you're an actual employee. So, so to go renew your visa, and then you thought like, oh, it's a another escape almost. Like, yeah, I can go to Toronto, fresh start on. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I had to go to Toronto to to for the for the visa, but and <laughs> once I lost my like, I, I didn't use the drug initially. Like, I just kind of went out and drank and and you know went out dancing or whatever. But then losing the passport, I think I felt really terrible and, and I didn't know how to cope with the feeling. So I, I, that was when I went and used, it was like a Monday morning You know, everybody else went off to work and I went to like a bathhouse. And so when, when did, so your friends, like your friends, um, approached Uh you and they said like, Hey, we're, we're concerned because they knew that you were, did they know that you were using drugs or were they just concerned that you disappeared? Well, I think the sex had something like that, but it didn't, the thing is it didn't really fit with me at all as a, as a person. Um, but you know, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily fit with anybody, you know, it's not, it doesn't, uh, it can happen to anybody, I suppose. Um, and yeah, the fact that I was just a wall with no explanation, I think I'm sure they, you know, began to imagine that, that there were drugs involved. And then when I told them which drug it was, I think, I think they, there was some panic because. Well, I mean, actually, so because it's such a it's such a destructive substance. Yeah, like they're not sitting there thinking like, oh, oh, we just like, smoked too much Robert's, weed. No, yeah, Robert's gone off and <laughs> smoked some weed no, and he's disappeared. No. <laughs> like, yeah, like no one cares. Like, well, people care if you're if you you've disappeared, but that's not a realistic scenario, yeah. right? It's, but and and I would be awake for you know I would sleep for like a few days, and so then you when you crash, you're like, oh. You know, kind of sketched out and 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 uh you know and then i sleep for like a whole day it was, it was pretty awful yeah it could be because you're every you think you're coherent but your speech is incoherent and you're like you're just not articulate right like i remember mm-hmm. my my uncle he like my uncle's passed away now but he gosh that's been I'm going to screw up the date, but it's probably about seven years now, six years, something like that since he passed away. Um, where, where did he live? He lived in, so he lived in, I mean, his, his story sounds so similar to, I'm sure a lot of people's stories and even some of the mm. things that you're alluding to where 
he the guy was brilliant like he's one of yeah. those he's one of those guys that was too smart for his own good right like just right. couldn't fit in in school because he was academically just too smart like he was thinking ahead of where the classes were at and um so i think he struggled with that oh. and he was gay as well and i don't know when he would have come out but anyways he ended up moving to los angeles okay. after yeah. he had graduated um graduated from college and uh he mm-hmm. was working in the film industry right like he was working with, he was working with mandalay which was um, a subsidiary of Sony. I, I don't know if Mandalay's still around, but they put out a lot of big films. And so then I don't know what his yeah. gateway drug was, if there was something. And then he got into meth, but then, yeah, he started getting into okay. trouble. And he, I think he was, right? And so he was spending a lot of time out late nights, and I think he was probably being promiscuous and all these things. And he's like... Mm. Mm-hmm. my uncle was such a great dude but he would call at these weird hours and he had my cell phone number because he my 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 mom and I used to have um two numbers and they were both under my name and he would always screw them up and he'd call my phone at these crazy hours and he'd be incoherent in his speech and I was just I was like I wouldn't say like Bill like I can tell you're high right now but you just listen to him and that was that right and um but he so he left LA for a fresh start and he went to Seattle and then same thing happened right where sounds like when you went to DC you think you get a fresh start and yeah and that uh and eventually he I don't I don't know no one really knows he he I think he had like died of heart failure but it's no one knows whether it's an overdose or not an overdose or what happened if it was just because he had been using for 15 years or whatever it is, right? Well, that's that's the thing with meth particular because it's a stimulant. Um, your your heart is just working overtime. And I mean, I know there were times I thought, you know, could I get a heart attack? And yet it wouldn't, it wouldn't stop me from using more. Um, like it's just so, um, it's so irrational. Um, but, and when you say Los Angeles, like that was the first, um, I believe it was the first place to, um, establish a Crystal Meth Anonymous fellowship, like a 12-step fellowship. So that kind of tells you something about that, you know, how the, it was one of the first places I suppose to be hit by a, like a wave of, of use. And I think it was specifically the gay community. And it could have to do a lot with like maybe it stemmed from that maybe it stemmed from um the industry that he was working in i don't know where he would have been exposed to i'm assuming he's probably going to be exposed to it in the group that he hangs out with most but um yeah well entertainment industry too would be a pretty like heavy partying yeah like so who knows who knows what his first exposure was Right, like I don't know what it was, but um, obviously he was exposed in some way or another, and then, yeah, and it's it's one of those things that he couldn't he couldn't ever break, and everyone tried to help him a lot, but you so you when you were in Toronto, then you came back to Winnipeg, and did your parents know 
at that point? Did they know like why you're coming? Yeah, I t- I told them um, at the urging of of a close family friend who's a who's a social worker. She just really strongly encouraged me to just get really honest with them. Um, I did, uh, and uh, I think they, I mean, they, they handled it fairly well. Um, it must have been incredibly hard for them to hear, and I think they were totally shocked. Like my mother actually said. She thought she thought she hadn't heard much from me because I was just you know, I was just too busy and I maybe I was just doing really well and you know they had no idea um, so they were trying to wrap their heads around it and and I was also you know I was trying to understand it but I also um, it it still would be a number of years before any of us understood the the prevalence of mood disorders in our in our family like my my dad. Um, a few years after that, that after like after I came home from Washington, my dad developed like psychotic mania, um, and was hospitalized. And and my sister had an episode as well, like after my father passed away. And and so, if I had, you know, if any of us had understood the nature of the problem back then, we perhaps would have, you know, things things would have been somewhat different because with with bipolar. The medication piece is so critical. Like, I mean, I take a, a mood stabilizer. Um, uh, otherwise, I, you know, minus crystal meth, you know, like taking that out of the picture completely, um, I can have these these ups and downs that are well beyond the range of sort of variety depression or anxiety. Like, I, you know, like I, when I was nanic, I was like, I kind of, I thought I was seeing signs of second coming of Christ. You know, <laughs> that's not something that, that the average person experiences. So I have to be, you know, it's a, it's a serious condition that I have to treat accordingly. And, and we just, we just, none of us knew. We just, we didn't know what we were dealing with. And, and, and I think for many years, I just thought that I was a drug addict and, you know, why couldn't I just get it together? And, and often with serious drug addiction or underlying mental health conditions. And I, I think we're getting better as a society at um, talking about that openly and identifying it and, and, and treating it properly. But um... yeah, that's, I mean, mental health is one of those, it falls within a, a similar bucket in the sense that there's been this same sentiment over the past 20 plus years where what was once taboo, right? Like, oh, you don't talk about that, right? Or it's just like, it's not um, accepted as much in society 20 X years ago. Now it's, it is something that is uh, th- there's so much awareness around it, and people are continuing to learn, right? And that's the key: is that people are continuing to be educated about um, what it is. And it doesn't mean like if somebody um, experiences maybe it's something that's they've got mental health uh, with mental health. Um, issues within their their genetics within their family right and it's like something that goes on and on generationally um it's not it's not doesn't mean like oh uh, well that person can't work right that person can't do anything whereas like 50 years ago it'd be like okay well uh it was just so different right like it was just such a weird thing it was it wasn't understood and so then people would brush it under the rug like we didn't want to understand it. 
And now it becomes one of those non-issues, right? Well, there's a lot less stigma around it, certainly. And, and there are, you know, very pretty good, uh, effective treatments available. And even then, it's still, it'd be tough to, to imagine to, like, you know, find the right medication and, um, and to, I always find it's hard to be objective about your own mental health <laughs> because it's pretty subjective, like you're feeling all those feelings. Um, but one thing I've been encouraged to do is to try to, you know, track it a bit, like almost sort of create data of myself, like, you know, rate my day or, or my mood or whatever. And, and then you have like a record and you can kind of look at, look at it more objectively. But, but when you're like in of it, it's very hard to see it for what it is sometimes. And so does that help you if you're if you're taking data points on yourself, right? Like you've got a Google Sheet open, let's say. Yeah, well, I like to say I'm not disciplined then, but I, <laughs> it's more like, well, you, like a scroll and journal entry here or there. And, and, we're going to assume you've yeah. got a Google Sheet, but would that help with, with, would that help with medication? Oh, yeah, I should. I, yeah, I should. I mean, actually, I, I um, was just talking with somebody about doing that in a more rigorous way because they were like oh you're a researcher you should be into data analysis and, and i was like yeah i guess you're right i gotta get on that you're just running regressions against yourself <laughs> <An algorithm>. <laughs> oh, that's so, funny. So, mm-hmm. so then you were back in winnipeg for a bit you had talked to your parents and then you decided to go back to toronto because that's when you started pursuing your phd yeah yeah, so York has a center for refugee studies, um, so that was an, that was appealing. Um, and I was again gonna do work on LGBT uh, refugee claims, um, and I I completed I'd say maybe about half half a PhD, <laughs> which amounts to nothing, but but that's okay. I uh, you know I still probably learned some skills, and um, I I'm certainly not the only. Uh, casualty of the phd program <laughs> i know a few few people who uh actually i know some who have finished but not found work and they're like you know working working at shoppers or something so like i don't i don't uh don't, at the time i dropped out of my phd i was like really beside myself but i i've since realized that uh you know it's not the it's not the greatest tragedy <laughs> and you when you went back you were like you had thought okay i'm going i'm gonna get clean um not going to use and and that was the goal and then how how long did that last for um well i mean i there there were a number of years where i couldn't really string together any real length of time and recovery like you know it would be a few weeks a month and then i would have a binge and you know i just went like that for for a few years, um, it was actually um, the, but but kind of, um, I don't know if it just sort of delivered such a shock that I, I had this radical shift in, in my outlook. But um, my dad died unexpectedly in at the end of two thousand nine, and then my mom died in a totally unrelated way. I mean, they weren't even married. Um, three months later, and so that was the first time that I really stayed clean. How are we doing, like time wise? Did you um, like? I know I I tend to I tend to like <laughs> go on and on, so you, you can cut me off at any time. <laughs> no, no, I'm totally good. If you're yeah, good, yeah, if you're good to keep I'm going, I'm, I will go. 
how we're going go. We got lots of lots of ground to cover. So, you, sorry, I cut out a bit there. So you you were saying that um, recovery is something that that you always work at, and that um, you had started using more after your parents both passed away. No, I started using. I stopped using after they passed away. Oh, you stopped yeah. using. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, the using escalated between their deaths. Like my dad died, and I was just like in a kind of in a in a downward spiral. And then I found out that when my mother had died because I was in detox, and a friend came to detox and and woke me up and said, "You know, I, I'm sorry. I have to tell you this. Your mom passed away yesterday," and you know, I was just beside myself because, because there was no, um, anticipation of that. Like she, she, um, just basically fell over and died on a hike, um, outside Victoria. Um, she had a heart condition, but, um, you know, we thought that it was sort of something that was treated with medication. And so I just, I just kind of woke up a bit through that, I think. And, and I, it, it didn't, it didn't happen through any effort on my part. It just was the circumstance it was sort of like shock therapy almost. Um, and I, so I did experience some recovery. Like I, I was, I was abstinent from drugs and alcohol for, for quite a while after that. Um, and then, but what I, what I, what I've learned and I, I'm kind of always learning this lesson is that um, if I'm not actively working at recovery, then it's it's like a downward um, escalator and you're going up the escalator. So you always have to kind of be going up, like working to go up. And otherwise, you, you know, the escalator is taking you down. And, and you, so you, when you quit your, your PhD program, you came back to Winnipeg though. I did, yeah. I am. Um, I taught English for a little while in Toronto, like just English as a alternative language. And um, yeah, I came back to Winnipeg, went to treatment here. Because um, when I did, when I did relapse, it was worse than ever, and and so I just I just got on a plane like after after kind of hitting a low what felt like a low bottom was caught on a plane and came to Winnipeg and found found a treatment center here and went through that program and why why did you come here I mean like you so you spent a lot of a lot of your youth here and then you're out west and then you're out east and you're yeah well I mean it was another geographic cure on some level um and that's not always a bad thing I mean sometimes if you're if you're really sinking like a stone, um, a change of, of scene is good. But if you're, if you're relying on that in the longer term, it's, it's problematic. Um, but I, I had, I still had a number of close friends and, um, family here. And so I, I think I figured it was a safe place to land. And I didn't have any real history here in terms of drug use. So I thought, you know, kind of start over, except I'm starting where I, where it all began, <laughs> but it had been like 15 years at that point since I had permanently lived here. 
But you didn't. You you had never used drugs when you were living here, did you? No, no. And so you moved back here, and then you're starting to get treatment. And then when was it that? I guess that's what kind of led us to reconnect. Is that my mom had seen that article in the? I think there was one, or maybe there were two articles, but there was some article that you were. Um, featured in and it was you telling your story about how you're trying to um you're trying to spread awareness for this story because not not you um in the sense of like you want people to know your story you want people to know the story or a story of how this can happen so easily to people that come from very stable middle class um, well-educated backgrounds and there are so many other factors to it, right? Like whether it's um, the tie-in to mental health or the tie-in to um, your exposure to meth within the gay community or whatever it is, but it's the fact that, hey, like it's not like this was something where it's like, well, of course, like, of course Robert went down that path because his parents both used and the community he lived in used and all his friends used. It was like, you didn't start using until you were, uh, an adult. Like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a teenager, uh, young, like a 18 year old, you know? Um, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I essentially didn't start, um, using drugs until I was, I had a master's degree already. I was like 25. Um, but I, I, I've met, many other people like myself who sort of come from that background that doesn't tend to match the stereotype that people have in their heads. Um, and meth in particular seems to really bring people to their knees um, in a way that is distinct from, from other substances. Not to say that they aren't also destructive. I mean, Alcohol can be very destructive, but it tends, alcoholics tend to, um, a lot of them tend to seek help sort of later in, in life. Um, meth is, uh, I don't know anybody who's, who's um, had success using meth um, as part of a, you know, any kind of career. Um, I, uh, I think, I think it, uh, <laughs> It's it's not conducive to to uh, any kind of professional work that requires a coherent mind. <laughs> um, and I, I've met you know lawyers, doctors who who were using it, and um, and then progressively lost jobs, positions, homes. Um, it's pretty it's pretty alarming. And then and what we see happening now more broadly in, in Winnipeg is, is, um, it's not surprising, sadly, in a, in a way, because meth is, is cheap. Um, it lasts a long time. It kind of gives people a sense of purpose or it gives you, it, 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 it motivates you. Although the thing is there's no, the, the, it's motivation towards an unknown or unspecified goal. Like it, it's, it's, uh, it's connected with, all kinds of different demographics in the city and and um the numbers are astounding like like the 
the report last week was that the number of people showing up at emergency rooms in Winnipeg has um, increased by 1,200% over 2013. Is it because it's more there's more uh, media awareness about it? Is it because there's more, it's more readily available with things like, like let's just say through social media, you could like DM a person now that you know might have something like it's, is it easier to find now? That could, that could be a factor because I know that like people definitely use Facebook to, to like find other drug users or even to like find drugs to purchase. Um, so that could be a factor. How do you find them though? Is it just like, you just like are scrolling through pictures on Instagram? Well, I mean, once, once you, once, well, with Facebook, for example, like once you have befriended a certain crowd of people, um, it'll prompt you and show you, oh, you know, you have these people in common. So you'll know by looking at those faces that there are other, there are other meth users, right? Cause once you get to know a few, it's like, it kind of, kind of spreads. Um, so, so social media does kind of create these, or it creates a platform for these networks to form. And you also see it more in, in movies too, or there's more like drugs, Inc. Like there's more shows about it in general, where I guess people, people can see, see it and maybe they get curious about it and then they don't think it's as bad as it is. And maybe that's, that's the one way in. Yeah, I I don't know. I think like I certainly saw all kinds of drugs depicted in on film like I don't know, I think of train spotting or you know, other movies that I mean that one's kind of a maybe not the greatest example because I yeah. I don't know that it really glorifies <laughs> drug addiction because it looks pretty nasty in that film. But you know, there there are other films that would you know, depict maybe a more attractive image of drug use um i don't think that necessarily translates into people using drugs themselves i mean it never did for me what what did what formed the connection was meeting someone who had it and being in a place where i had stopped kind of caring about myself like i i was i was i was taking risks because i was deeply unhappy i didn't know why um, I'd kind of tried maybe a few different things to feel better. And, um, this gave me an instant, instant relief and escape. Um, and I think that once people experience that, it, it's, it's speaking to them on a different level than the conscious mind that's educated and intelligent and, you know, sees these public information, you know, warnings about meth. Everybody knows that meth is bad, but once, once it sort of, supplied to the reptile brain is a really primitive structure that we all have once the reptiles into it then you're you're operating on a whole other level like on a on a really primal level and um and and the hold that it that it can have on people at that point then is is pretty it's pretty strong i mean not everybody will become an addict like just from trying it but um if, if people are running from something, like if they've got a lot of trauma in their backgrounds or they, you know, they've, they've got some um, undiagnosed mental illness, like this is, this is, becomes like medicine. 
And so when you, like, you first tried it when you were being more promiscuous, and was it that you were, like, when you said you were addicted to sex, was it addicted to finding, like, new people to hook up with? Or was it, like, so was it that you would, like, you'd find all these people through chat or online, however it was, you'd find them, and then was that because you were, were you... Or maybe it was both. Were you like genuinely like interested in that, like the sexual aspect of it, or was it like was it the chase, the sexual aspect, or was it trying to fill that void because you said that you're like you're um, deeply hurting, like you felt you're, or was it kind of both? Yeah, it's all it's all the above. Like I think those those behaviors um, were a form of escape, and I just found that I would. I'd almost go into like this trance-like state. Like this is before using drugs. This is just say sort of cruising um, on a chat line or, you know, now it would be Grindr, of course, um, or something like that, or Tinder for straight people. Um, you kind of go, like you, you kind of go into this robotic <laughs> mode and I don't know, it's a way to mood alter almost. And then like once that connected with with the drug use, it would just kind of kicked it up you know 10 notches in terms of the intensity of it um and i i really i didn't give it a lot of conscious rational thought or planning like i wouldn't be like oh yeah this this friday night i'm gonna you know go smoke some meth and like i it, it would kind of it would kind of just happen and 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 i i don't mean that that i like to disavow my own responsibility for my actions but i but i definitely i had a level of denial around it that like um required me to sort of maintain some kind of separation between like you know my identity of robert lidstone and this other creature who like would just sort of appear without much notice and like just hijack everything and and run off and do its thing and then when he'd run out of steam and crashed and I'd kind of go back to being myself and then I'd kind of have to clean up after the, the addict. And it was this very like Jekyll and Hyde kind of dynamic. It's like the devil on the shoulder, yeah. like that cliche, like devil on the shoulder, like don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. But you know, you're going to like, it's just, it becomes that it becomes yeah. cyclical. You, you know, it's almost like, before it happens, you're like, I've seen this movie and I know the way it ends. Yeah. I know exactly what's going to, you know, and it's like you can know that you don't like it, but back to what you were saying about our reptilian brains and our, it becomes this primitive mindset where you're just, mm-hmm. you're out for the hunt. You're out for, you're out for, um, you're out for, to, to fill the most yeah. basic yeah. human needs, right? Like, I want to feel good. You just want to, like, especially with when you're, like, when you were cruising, right? When that was, like, before it became about drugs, when you're just cruising, then that was, that's almost like, that's about the hunt, right? Yeah, oh, totally, for sure. Like, like there's something about, I mean, we're, we are, that's innate in our DNA, like, that we've grown up as these, like, hunter-gatherers, and we, like, People want to hunt. They want to hunt. You want to find, 
you want to, whether it's you want to hunt or you want to fish or you want to make a, make a stick fire. It's in, it's in all of our blood. Like it mm-hmm. just is right. Like how, how repressed it is for some over others. Right. It's there like a hundred percent. It's there. People want to grow their own food. People want to, like it's, it's a part of our blood. And so it's, yeah, it's understandable how that those behaviors manifest in all these different, um, through all these different avenues. Right. So when you, when you were back here, then when was it that you felt like you had actually like hit rock, rock bottom? Cause I know you, you, um, you had shed some light on it in a couple of mm-hmm. those stories. Yeah. Well, because I, I, there was a, a period where I was homeless, um, because I was living in, um, like abstinence based housing, which was a great place actually. Um, but once you relapse at that particular facility, um, you can't return. So it was the middle of winter and, uh, I I really kind of just I think there was a level of despair um, that I felt as a result of having been at it so many years, and by at it I mean both the addiction, but also the trying to get well. Like I I genuinely wanted to stop suffering, which is you know probably true for everybody, um, and I, I didn't I I didn't um, I didn't well you know nobody wants to be a homeless drug addict, but I'd also gotten to a point where, like the two months prior to that, I, um, I was suicidal frequently. I mean, I actively entertained suicide for a couple of months. Um, I was mostly just in, in a in my bedroom, glued to the TV screen or to a, you know phone or whatever, like watching videos and just trying not to feel how. Sh- terrible i felt um and so this this yeah this new phase of like even greater desperation set in and um it just it just became um when you're homeless i think you kind of just go into survival mode and and survival survival like not just in terms of like food and shelter but also like emotionally um numbing so finding drugs um staying high and then finding a place to, to eat and sleep in between and then doing it over again and like really not thinking beyond the moment ever um and i'm it's 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 incredible really that that went on for a couple of months in the dead of winter and not just, and that's a, that's the thing it's not like it was i mean to be homeless in san francisco is different than being homeless in winnipeg manitoba between January and March. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is because, you know, I mean, you can you can die from exposure um, in this climate, and, and people have. I mean, the, there was a woman who died um, just, well, in my neighborhood here in West Broadway. She was, she was a meth user, and she, like, sometimes people don't feel how cold it is if they're on meth, um, and she... I think fell asleep on a, on a, like a heating vent or something like that in a back lane, and you know they found her body. Um, so I, I um, ultimately I found I found myself sleeping um, in a in a basement bathroom 
of the St. Boniface Hospital, which is a hospital where I'd been born, you know, 36 years earlier, and where my dad had died in 2009. And, and here I was, like, I'd found a, a place where nobody would bother me, and I could lock the door and, and sleep for like 12 hours and, you know, emerge. And, and like, I didn't want anybody to know that this was going on. In fact, I, when someone else used the word homeless to describe my situation, I said, don't say the H word, because I was so ashamed. Like you thought, how could I, how could I have gotten this deep? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was thoroughly disgusted with myself, but I also didn't really, like I had, I had kind of given up hope. So I just, I just figured I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna use and just not gonna think. Use. Um, so eventually I, uh, I crossed paths with um, someone who I knew from the from the kind of the drug underworld who had um, been helped by this um, transition home for for men who've been homeless in St. Boniface um, called Morberg House, and um, I uh, continued to to volunteer and work with them, um, and they they really. There are a number of things that I think make them unique and make them um, effective. And one of them is that they really prioritize the mental health piece and like getting a proper diagnosis and treatment. And so I finally, through them, got connected to a really excellent psychiatrist and, and he did a thorough um, series of sessions with me that arrived at a, a diagnosis and I, I started taking a mood stabilizer and um it hasn't been a straight line <laughs> totally since then but i but it's i definitely i haven't hit anywhere near the same low in terms of you know feeling suicidal because i think i finally had some explanation for you know why i had experienced these ups and downs for so long and and once you had once you had some insight and once you had medication then did that help you to stay clean or did it help you on your path through yeah well it's definitely it's definitely been a game changer um i did have a a relapse but um but i but without being on the mood stabilizer, like, I don't know, I think I'd be in far worse shape. Um, some of it too was that I, I um, experienced the most intense mania of my life. <laughs> some, um, and uh, it was sort of, bef- it was in, in between um, my last use of meth and going on the mood stabilizer um, where I, I was having these religious visions and I, I thought I could see the future <laughs> and it was all tied in with the history of Manitoba, like things to do with Louis Riel and Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, without getting into it, it was very elaborate. Um, it was very powerful. And so even when I started a mood stabilizer, like I couldn't totally part with, with that experience. And it, it took it took quite a long time to like come to terms with with some of it and to to um 
for it to fade away, I guess you could say. And so then if you if you get and forgive me for my ignorance, I'm asking out of curiosity and because I don't know. But so if if you have manic thoughts, is that what happens where it's these uh, like I can see the future and I can like it's almost just these um, you have all these different thoughts. And then is that a catalyst? Like, is that what happened when you relapse is that you have these manic thoughts and you know what it was actually it was actually coming down the mania that was hard because <laughs> the mania was wonderful it was beautiful it was it was i had tons of energy i felt you know hopeful and um i had all these ideas and um and as i as i went on the mood stabilizer and came out of it i gradually had less energy and I realized, oh, I guess that maybe wasn't, not all of that was a direct message from God. <laughs> and, oh, I guess maybe that prediction about the future, oh, maybe, oh, I guess that wasn't quite right. It's like, <laughs> and so it was kind of um, disheartening in a weird way. And and I did, I, I functioned, you know, reasonably well for a while. Like I was doing, I was active, you know, I mean, I wrote a couple of pieces for the CBC. I went to, a, attended a conference on ending homeless, like a national conference on ending homelessness. Um, it did, you know, more writing for that I had hoped to submit for publication and a little bit of paid research. Um, but uh, I, I, I think I, I was really a bit depressed actually by midwinter. And, um, and so I, I did, I did relapse um, with meth. And so it wasn't it wasn't the mania per se that led it was more the depression that that preceded it. And I, I don't like to sound as though I'm blaming the the everything on the mental illness. I mean I, ultimately too I have to like there are certain things that I have to do and a and a and a certain outlook that I have to maintain in order to be well and in order to stay in recovery. And nobody else can do those things for me and even with medication, um, you know, there's still a lot of work that I have to have to be doing constantly. And that was this past winter, you're saying? Yeah, that was this past winter. So, so when that happens, like, is it that that you're exposed to it, and then that is what triggers it, or is it that you feel like you have to go find it. No, I, I was, it wasn't that I, I wasn't exposed to it. Um, I, I sought it out. Um, I don't know. I, I, it was like a middle of the week. It was like a Tuesday afternoon or something. Like it was really, um, I didn't know until I went out to do it that I was going to do it. Um, but like you thought, I'll just go see if I can find it. Um, well, I mean, I knew where to find it. I, I contacted somebody and went went over to their place. Um, but I just mean in terms of the decision to do it was sort of, it was probably like forming, you know, maybe you could say at a subconscious level it had been forming for a while. But I, but I, I don't know. I think that um, some, of, some of it was just uh, giving up too easily, I suppose, and, and, and being frustrated that um, honestly that some of the mania was some of the visions weren't true I think I finally realized that it was all 
you know, the product of my imagination. And that was, it was, yeah, it was not just disappointing. It was, it was depressing. <laughs> um, but, but I, I don't know. I have a, now I have a bit more of a sense of humor about it. Um, but if you think that you're getting, you know, receiving a prophecy and you truly believe that, it's not something you leave behind easily. At least it wasn't for me. <laughs> no, because it feels, uh, feels very real. And, and it was, I, I would imagine that it would feel like you were saying energizing. Yeah, energizing and, and like it was all, it had consequences for the world. It was like <laughs> world peace was on the horizon. <laughs> Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure with Rufus. <laughs> yeah, there we go. See, we, we brought it in. Full circle. <laughs> but that was real. That very, was very real. real. <laughs> yeah. There was a bit of an alien rescue component as well. But that's for another time. <laughs>